we have been on this journey of series of Summer of Psalms. And we call it the Songs of Our Lives. Because in the book of Psalms, you will find songs that describe your experiences. There is the song of therefore we tackled in one of the messages, the series. One of the songs was the song of hope because we need hope. Another song was the song of courage. When you face the giants of your life, here's what God says you could do and you should do. Sing the song of courage. And there's a song of calling. God has a purpose and meaning in your life through Jesus Christ, and therefore you sing the song of calling. Your destiny is found in this song. And the song of repentance. And this morning we're going to sing the song of worship. It's about worship. And so let me spell out clearly as I can. There are three points in this message. Number one, what is worship? What is this thing called worship? It's so broad, so narrow. What is it? We're going to define it together. And number two, why should we worship Jesus above all else? Why does Jesus demand? Why is he worthy of our ultimate adoration in worship? And lastly, if since that's the case, hence therefore, how should we worship Jesus well? as individuals, as a community, all right? So let me just say a quick prayer, and we will read the scripture. Risen Christ, my God, my Lord, I am a sinner saved by your grace, unworthy instrument, but because of your grace, I am what I am. Thank you. Now use me to reveal your glory. Help me to share with everybody else in this room that you are the ultimate desire of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the song of worship is from Psalm 95. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, 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 let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Mesa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, for 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have, they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So friends, here's the main idea. Here's the theme and the goal of the entire message. Okay? Jesus Christ shapes 
your worship through the grace of worship. Would you repeat after me? Jesus Christ shapes your worship. I am a communicator who does better if you interact with me. Okay? That's, that's how God wired me. So please repeat after me. Jesus Christ shapes your worship through the grace of worship. Your worth is shaped, forged, fashioned by Jesus Christ, and he uses the means, the lesson of the grace of worship. If you do true worship of Christ, that will empower you, transform you, energize you, because you are being defined in your worth, in your worship by Christ. So first question, what is worship? What is worship? Here's a working definition. It's a pretty good one. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes, transforms your whole being. Let me repeat that. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something that energizes your whole being. Let me give you an illustration. My son, Joshua, helped me with this, by the way, so I give him credit. How many of you are a, a fan of the Toronto Raptors? Okay, the rest of you, shame on you. Be more patriotic. We live in Canada now, so we become Raptors fans. Okay? Now, we had this team, the champions in the NBA. This was in the 25 years of making. It, it, it took 25 years for us to say, we are the champions of the world. Now, for me, the defining, defining, defining moment in the Raptors season was not winning the championship, although they did do that. It's not even making through the uh, conference finals. You know what it was? For me, the defining moment was game seven, between the Raptors and Philadelphia 76ers. Series, seven-game series. We went back and forth, back. We win one, they win one. We go to their stadium, they kick our butt, we come back home, and we show them who's the champs. Back and forth, really, really, really tight series. Now, game seven, the series tied at three and three. The winner moves on to the next round. Okay? And the score was 90 to 90. Tight, tight race. We call timeout. There's three seconds left on the clock. We get the position of the ball, and the ball is given to guess whom? Say his name again. Oh, I miss him. He gets the ball, and no doubt, he's double covered. Okay? The shot blocker of the 76ers, he is in his face, and as the time takes, three, two, he eludes, he jumps, he hangs in the air, Kawhi shoots, Beyond the arc. The ball hits the rim. Hits the other side of the rim. It tiptoes five times. Tick, 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 tick. And in the meantime, here's Kwai. What's going to happen? And the ball drops as the time runs out. So we win by three points. Friends, I'm telling you, that was the shot of the entire season. Guess how I reacted to that? 
Can you guess? Guess how every person in the stadium react to that. Can you guess? Guess how all the Canadian fans who watch the game, not live only, but replay, replay, you know how they reacted? The way they should have. With excitement, with awe, wonder, and yeah. I say this because that reaction to that chart was the right fitting response. That's an example of worship because it's ascribing ultimate value to something, right? That shot demands your appreciation because you're ascribing worth to the shot. By contrast, imagine there's a basket. I make a paper ball, make a shot. What's the proper response to that? Well, maybe, hey, Victor, nice shot. That's it. You know why? Because that's the right fitting response. No one should say, wow, Victor, that was such a great No, because it does not warrant, it does not call, it does not ask, it does not demand that kind of response because there isn't enough worth to my shot. You follow what I'm saying? And that's why worship of Jesus Christ is nothing less, nothing more than ascribing the ultimate value to who he is, his glory, his beauty, his majesty, who he is, his awesomeness, as we should. And when we do that, it transforms our whole being. And therefore, Christ shapes your worship through the grace of worship. Let me speak to most of us, some of us, I really don't know, who feel, you know, Victor, I don't get energized by worship of Jesus. I don't certainly feel transformed by when I worship Jesus. No, that, that doesn't happen. In fact, I find worship of Jesus Christ either irrelevant, boring, or uninteresting. Okay? You know why you feel that way? Because with all due respect, you fail to see the beauty, the glory, the majesty, the awesomeness of Jesus' worth who he is. May I illustrate this? Suppose, 10 years ago, your grandfather, as he passed, he leaves behind one of his items to you. Okay? You wished he had given you his 76 convertible Mustang, but he didn't. Instead, he gave you this painting. It's a picture of Stars in the night. I don't know, Impressionism era. But you are no artist. And you go, hmm, gee, thanks, Grandpa. And you put that in the attic. And for the last 10 years, it's been collecting dust. Okay? What, what you did was, it's worth, given it's worth, you said, hmm, here's my response to that attic. Yeah? 
Now, by chance, one of your buddies, who is an expert in European paintings, he happens to see this painting of yours. And he says, hey, you know what this is? This is the lost, one of the lost paintings of Victor Van Gogh, sorry, Vincent Van Gogh. You take it to the expert, and it is prized at, appraised at $3.5 million. And all of a sudden, here's how you react to the painting. It is no longer in the attic. It is framed. There's, there's alarm system everywhere. And it is nailed in your center place in your living room. And it is gorgeous. You love it. You watch. You look at it every day. What, what happened? What happened? Same old painting. What has changed is your sense of ascribing its worth. You realize this is precious. You realize this is a masterpiece. You realize this is expensive. This is, this is awesome. So your response to it has changed. Okay? I say this to let you know, if you find worship of Jesus Christ boring, irrelevant, uninteresting, it doesn't transform you, that's because you put him in the attic, not realizing his worth. Now, let's go on. So what you worship engages, therefore, engages, transforms your emotion, your body, and your will. Let me read verse 1 from Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy. Sing for joy. It is from the heart. It is your emotion. It, it, it just transforms who you are. Let us shout aloud with your verbal articulation. Shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Because you find Jesus Christ beautiful. It also engages your body. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us prostrate. Let us raise our hands. Because he is so worthy that he demands. It's a natural response that your hands just go up. Your hands go up. Yes, hallelujah, Jesus. You are my song. Okay? It also involves, engages your volition, your will. Verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. Instead, soften your hearts. It engages all your being. And that's why Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Meaning, worship the Lord with your whole being, with your entire faculty. Two mistakes that we make in worship. Number one, when someone says, as I said, worship of Jesus Christ, uh, not engaging. That's because we fail to see his glory, his preciousness, right? Number two mistake is when someone says, you know, Nathan, the band sounded pretty good, but I didn't get anything out of that. It's a mistake because we think worship is something that we receive. Uh-uh. I said, worship is the act of ascribing value, right? So worship is something we do for the Lord Jesus. And worship is broad. In view of God's mercies, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Okay? So worship is in response to who Jesus is, his glory, his power, his sovereignty, his majesty. We respond to him 
ascribe value to his worth, as we sing, obviously, as we listen to the message, you are worshiping right now by engaging in this conversation. As God's book is open, you worship him. You also worship him as you serve, as you trust. In fact, all of your life, whatever you respond to Jesus is an act of worship. So therefore, let none of you say, I didn't get anything out of that sermon. Well, friends, if you get nothing out of this sermon, that's on you. Because we're doing this to the Lord. He's receiving it, I believe. Because we do so in the name of Christ. Jesus Christ shapes your worship through the grace of worship. So that's what is worship. Number two, second question. Then why should we worship Jesus? Why him? Why not something else or someone else? Listen to this. Lest someone says here, you know, Victor, worship is for the religious people, the Christians. I am not religious. I'm not a Christian. So what you've been saying all this morning is irrelevant. I beg to differ. Listen, everyone is worshiping something. For your heart is already ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that you want to find transformation. So therefore, an atheist is worshiping something just as Christian is worshiping something. An agnostic is worshiping something. I'm worshiping something. You are worshiping something. Shirley MacLaine is worshiping something. Tom Cruise is worshiping something. Everyone, everyone. Japanese is worshiping for something. So are the Africans. We are all worshiping everyone. Both believers and unbelievers are worshiping. I know this to be true because I watched Harry Potter's movie. In one of the movies, there's a scene where Harry Potter stands in front, in front of this mirror. And the mirror is called the Mirror of Erised. That's the word desire spelled backwards. Okay? He stands in front of the mirror. And the mirror reveals the deepest longing, the biggest desire of Harry's. Guess what he sees? His mom and dad, who were murdered when he was an infant. So for the rest of his life, that's all he longed for. He said, if I have mom and dad, then I'll be happy. If I have mom and dad, I will be better. If I have mom and dad, because that's what's missing in my life. So Harry calls his best friend, Ron. Ron, get over here. Stand in front of this mirror. Tell me what you see. Ron goes, oh, I see a stud. I see a heartthrob. Okay. What? You don't see my parents? No, I don't. I, I see me just better and improved. Because okay. the mirror reveals the desire of Ron's. Okay. Now, Harry Potter's mentor then says this. I'm paraphrasing. Okay. Everyone is living for something. Whatever that thing is, it orients your whole being. It completely controls you the way it controls Harry and Ron. So the mentor says, and I quote, we're going to move, we're going to hide this mirror because the trouble is people waste away before it. 
waste away looking at it because they think it will transform them, but it doesn't because we are worshiping not the ultimate thing. May I give you one more example? May I give you one more example? Thank you. Thank you. No thanks. Madonna. I'm a fan of Madonna's, not because of her songs, but because she is so tuned with what is going on in her heart. I think she's a better theologian than I am in many aspects. I have much respect for her, okay? Madonna is one of the quintessential icons of our era. There will be no Rihanna without Madonna. There, there will be no Beyonce without Madonna. Madonna is the diva. Okay? And I read this paragraph in the Vanity Fair magazine in an interview that she, interview that she did. And this is what she said. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feelings of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think, I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is to escape from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, always pushing me. Because even though I become somebody, listen, even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Did you catch that? Okay. She has been ascribing the ultimate value to her success and performance. Time after time. It gives her a temporary fulfillment, pleasure, identity, destiny. But it evaporates because she says, I have become somebody, but I have to prove to myself and prove to the world and to my fans that I am somebody because that's not enough now. So whatever you worship, and you are worshiping something, if it's not Jesus, it will never satisfy you energize you or transform you in your whole being. Because Jesus Christ and He alone shapes your worship through the grace of worship. So here's the question. You ready? What are you worshiping? Third question, okay, if Jesus is the one that we should worship, how can we worship Jesus well? First, and I got this from Tim Keller, he said, the process of true worship of Jesus is to, number one, to recognize where your worship already is elsewhere, and then transfer your ultimate worship to Jesus, because you are worshiping something right now. So number one, recognize it, call it out. Is it your career? Is it acceptance? Is it your children? Is it your hobbies? 
Is it your sense of belonging with somebody? Is it singleness? Is it marriage? Is it your sexual orientation? So recognize what you're worshiping and then transfer that to Jesus Christ. So my wife, whom I love, respect, adore, There is no other human being that I respect more than my wife. She has been my partner both in life, in ministry. She told me one day, not too long ago, Victor, I realize my ultimate worship is not Jesus. She was making a confession. She said, my ultimate worship is Johanna and Joshua. Because I feel like my identity, my security, and my destiny are wrapped around how they do in life. She recognized her worship, and then she transferred that to Jesus by saying, Lord Jesus, I love John and Joshua, but they are not the ultimate value in my life. I love them. I am willing to die for them. And yet, you give me my self-worth, not my children. You give me my self-worth, not, not anything else, not career, not Victor, not Johanna. Jesus Christ, you are my worth. So that's the first thing you do. Recognize and transfer. Second, Jesus wants us to worship in community. Verse 1, 2, 6, and 7. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Verse 2, let us come before him with thanksgiving. Verse 6, let us bow down in worship. And 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. It's all... Plural, personal pronouns. He says, let us, not let me. He says, our God, not my God. It's, we are to worship Jesus in community. And you say, well, hang on here. Does that mean I can't worship Jesus in my privacy? Of course you could. You can sing songs of joys in your shower. And I'm glad that you do it there, not here, perhaps. You can read scripture and meditate as an act of worship on your own. Jesus honors that. You can serve apart from the community on your own. However, I believe that your private worship is a preparation for your corporate public worship. You catch that? The way... The more mature you are as a private individual worshiper of Jesus, the way you are able to enhance and edify and help others in a public corporate worship. Abraham and Mosaic House Church, we are a church of house churches. Uh, what's a house church? Uh, think of your small group on steroids. It's like beefed up. We are a movement of house churches and mosaic house. Abraham, young, young man, but he's been a Christian for 20 years. 
He says, whenever I come to my house church, as we open God's word, I'm just baffled. I get something new. It energizes my faith. And by the way, that's a passage that I've meditated and reflected on on my own for a number of times. But it is in the community. It is magnified, edified, blown up. So first, you recognize and transfer your worship. Two, you worship Jesus in community. And third, you worship Jesus in truth. Verse 3. Jesus is the great God because for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Jesus claims that he is God. The reason he is worthy of your worship is he is God. If he is not God, we should never give him our ultimate value in worship. So you have to reckon with, and we can't get to this today, you have to decide, discern, and investigate, is Jesus who he says he is. Because if he's not, you should run away from him. He says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He claims that he's equal with God. He claims that there is no other way because he is God. Jesus is also the creator God. Psalm 95, verse 4 and 5. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Friends, you know why you should worship Jesus Christ? Because he is your creator. You are a masterpiece. Not because in your own self-worth, but because of the master who created you. You know how wonderful Wonderfully and fearfully you are created. You have no idea. C.S. Lewis writes, okay? Angels bow down before you because you have been made in the image of God. If you begin to understand how wonderful you are, what an amazing masterpiece you are, then you get to understand, grasp, oh my gosh, then the the maker, the creator, he is worthy of my worship. Worship him because he's your creator. We live in the great north here. You go to the mountains and you go, oh, this is amazing. That masterpiece, who made it? Jesus Christ. Give him your worship because he is worthy of your response. Jesus is your shepherd for he is our God. This is verse 7. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Okay? In, in the psalm, Jesus says, Worship him, worship me because I am your creator, but worship me also because I am your savior. This is a covenantal language. He is your shepherd. And the word Lord in caps, L-O-R-D, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh or Jehovah. It's not translatable. But what it means is that God is saying, I am going to become your personal covenantal God. And this, everyone, God is God to everyone, but not, He is not the Lord for everyone. 
And that's because only those of us who enter into this personal relationship, we get to call him L-O-R-D, his special designation. And that's because Jesus Christ, not only did he create you, he also saved and redeemed you. He is your savior. Once you realize that he, he died for you, that gives, that's right, baby, that gives this amazing sense of worth. I am unworthy. I'm a sinner. Worse than anyone here. And yet, the king of the universe came down. He died for me. He gave me his life. He gave me his blood. The reason I am who I am today as a child of God is because of Jesus. That moves me, friends. That calls, that, that demands that I fall before Jesus and give him worth for what he has done. He is worthy of your worship as your creator and savior. So let's conclude, friends. Let's land a plane. What is worship? The act of ascribing ultimate value to something that transforms your whole being. Why should we worship Jesus? Because you are worshiping someone, and if it's not Jesus, it will always, always leave you empty. And third, how can we worship Jesus well? Number one, recognize what you worship and transfer it to Jesus Christ. And number two, worship in community. And three, worship Jesus in truth. And last, here's a warning and an invitation. The bottom half of the Psalm 95 is a very peculiar piece. Because he says, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did it that day in Mesa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Friends, remember this. If what you worship is not Jesus, you will always be restless. You will be restless for the rest of your life if your ultimate worship, object of worship is Jesus. If it is anything else or anyone else, you will be a restless soul. And Jesus is inviting you, therefore, see my glory, see my beauty, see what I've done for you. Choose me. Would you pray? I want to invite the priest into the front and let's pray. And as we pray, I want to create a time for you to respond. That's right. You've heard why Jesus, why he should be our object of worship. Now, therefore, you need to respond. You can say, well, he's not my God. I'm not going to worship him yet. I respect that. But would you please investigate and come to your own conclusion? Conclusion. Is Jesus who he says he is. And if he's not, run away from him. But if he is, he is worthy of your worship. And I want to say also to my friends here, friends, search your heart. Search your heart. Do you see his glory? Do you find his worth? If not, see him as your creator once again. See him as your savior once again.
So let me give you a time, a moment now, for you to say back to him, respond to him. Say in your heart what you need to say to him, for he deserves your worship. <laughs>